Welcome to the Dynamics Hot Dish, the podcast where Ashley Steiner, Allie Nelson, and Liz McLennan dish up the latest news and insights about Dynamics and the Power Platform. Join us to explore business applications and low-code development with tips, tricks, and real-world experiences. So grab a seat at the table and let's dig in. The only other thing that came to my mind is I can talk about how much I hate April Fools, especially since I've joined the working world. Did something happen to you? Uh, I just, I, I don't think I'm getting more gullible. I think the articles are getting better. And Microsoft on top of it was releasing like deprecations for April 1st. And I was having a really hard time figuring out what's real and what's not. <laughs> so was any of it not real or was it all real? None of the stuff from Microsoft was fake, but I did have a couple articles that I fell for this year that I felt really kind of silly about afterwards, but I was reading them, getting all excited, like, yeah, this is great. This is great. And then like talking to other people and they're like, that's not real. So. Oh, <laughs> that's so sad. So it wasn't like office pranks. It was like, no, it's like people are getting really good at writing articles for April Fool's. You know, like every year, New Glarus will put out like, oh, we're expanding to Rhode Island and stuff like that. And it's like, okay, well, I know that one's fake. But one of them was like the ski resort in Utah was announcing that they were switching to snowboarders only because there's a bunch of skiers only resorts. And by a bunch, I mean like two. So I got really excited because they were posting all this good stuff about like what snowboarders would like. And I was like, perfect that like a lot of snowboarders go here compared to other hills. It was totally believable. And then I was talking to Matt about it, and he's like, that's not a real thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's just funny. blame being a dumb blonde or something on it. <laughs> well, yeah, right. It sounds then, believable, though. Like, that sounds yeah. actually believable. Like, they could turn. It is. And that's yeah. what I'm saying. A lot of stuff out there, like, sounds believable. And then, like, one of them that I read from Microsoft was that they're deprecating the Omnichannel app. And I was like, oh, well, this can't be real. But it's real. I read the article like six times and it's a real thing. And they're replacing it with customer service workspace. But it's like, why does the deprecation date have to be April 1st? Sounds like we need to do a follow-up on Omnichannel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like moral of the story, just don't believe anything that's posted on April 1st. And if it's still around a day later, then... <laughs> The only like April Fool's joke I think that I like in that kind of context that I've fallen for is when I worked for Dynamic Communities. They ran the user groups, you know, forever ago. And they announced like, oh, we're starting an Xbox user group partnership, partnering with Microsoft and blah, 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 and all this stuff. And we were all like, that's so cool. Like Xbox, total. Yeah, it was April Fool's. But I thought it sounded cool. I was like, I would love to like just play Xbox all day. And like, and Xbox fits in the stack. Right. Well, exactly. So it's it's like, a Microsoft tool. So it was exactly. just really funny. That was the only one where I was like, that actually sounds kind of cool, but it was a prank. So. See, get our hopes up. I've officially decided that I don't like April Fools. What did you do for your birthday? Well, it hasn't happened yet. Um, my birthday is on Thursday. The, well, I guess it'll be like the Thursday before we post this. Um, but my mom actually flew into town. Um, like the weekend, because her birthday is two days before mine, um, ironically today as we're recording. Um, and so she actually flew into town and we had like a birthday party at my sister's house. My sister just eats that up like the whole 
family parties at her house, which I avoid um, at all costs. But this year I was like, fine, it's my first year in Texas. So I asked my mom to fly out. And um, it was Gilmore Girls themed because they were, my other sisters were trying to think of like, what's a cool like mom-daughter duo like that we can do a theme on. So we did Gilmore Girls and we actually dressed up, well, dressed up as close as we could to Lorelai and Rory. And um, yeah, it was fun. That's cute. Yeah. My mom had a heck of a time getting here. Um, She got diverted and almost stranded in Abilene, Texas because of weather, but she made it like 36 hours later. Wow. Hmm. I feel like there's been a lot of weather traveling issues. Like two weeks ago, a week and a half ago, whenever everyone was trying to get to Miami, like Tom's aunt and uncle were flying from San Diego and there was all the flooding in Florida. It took them two days to get there. And they went to like Portland and then New York and then like it was oh yeah it, was, it sounded terrible. I'm like, yeah, two days flying just isn't fun. We had a really bad experience flying back from Fort Lauderdale, so like we had to get off the cruise really early. And I was like, okay, no problem. Like we'll just get to the airport early, get through security, and then like go hang in a restaurant, right? No, they don't let you check your bags and go through until an hour before your flight departs. An hour. So we had to what? sit, and, like, there's 5,000 people Usually and, like, 100 chairs, and so we're sitting on the floor, like, waiting, <sighs> and there's, like, this little, like, you know, the little kiosk with, like, books and snacks and water, and that was it. Like, we couldn't get real food. I was like, this is terrible. Like, I would have gone to a restaurant, like, outside of the airport if I knew I just had to, like, wait here. Usually it's, you have to check it by an hour, yeah, like, they, it's like, before. it was such a small airport with all the people coming off the cruise that they couldn't accommodate. So, like, they were trying to, like, you know, control how much luggage they were getting at a time. And That's crazy. Yeah. But still, for how many cruises go through that area, you either fly into Miami or Fort Lauderdale, you'd think that right. there would be enough infrastructure to kind of support that at this point. Clearly not. No. And then I was like, maybe this is why all of the other people were going out of Miami. Like, they knew. Like, everyone, all the friends were like, oh, no, we're flying out of Miami. And I was like, oh, maybe that's a bigger airport and you, this isn't a problem there. Yeah, Miami's actually a really nice airport. So, yeah. lesson learned. <laughs> for your next cruise, since maybe you can sign up for the two that Tom's yeah. brother did. We're good. <laughs> what about yeah. you, Allie? What are you doing for your birthday? Um, my family is coming up this weekend. It actually works out because my dad's last day of work forever, aka retirement, is on Thursday. So he's really excited. We're really excited. So we're doing like a dual retirement party slash birthday for me. So the whole family's going to be here. Yeah, I, I don't have too many activities planned yet. My dad's request was this one specific restaurant in St. Paul that we love, Handsome Hog. And then he wants to do brunch at a not dark place on Sunday. And those were his two requests. <laughs> What's not dark mean? I think he wants something like bright and happy and family and like, like kind of like that. I've never been to a brunch place that's not bright and happy. Cause like everyone's drinking Bloody Marys and mimosas. So like what, that's funny. I've never heard that before. I know. So I was thinking about it and I think the last time we went out to brunch, it was at the steakhouse, like kind of a steakhouse place. And so I guess that could be considered kind of dark. And so maybe that's what he's referencing. But I I agree. I thought it was funny. I think usually when you go to brunch, it's like these like light, airy places and everyone's in a good mood. And yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> so I figured, hey, I can easily fulfill that request. So I'll be happy. Yeah. So I guess two things there. One for like listeners, obviously you can tell Allie and I, our birthdays are a day apart, which we didn't know until this podcast. I thought it was funny when, um, and I've been my whole life, like without knowing anyone with a birthday other than my mom near mine. And like, as an adult, like I knew somebody who had a birthday on the 24th. My mom's on the 25th. Allie, you're the 26th. I'm the 27th. It's just crazy. Um, how many late April people there are. But my other thing is, Allie, do you mind sharing like the celebration with your dad? Or I guess like I, you don't share like a birthday with anyone else in your family. So you probably don't know what that's like. Yeah. No, and that's a good point because, um, you know, a lot of people have birthdays around the holidays and things like that. And I've never had to deal with that. I've always been like after spring break, after Easter, after just kind of this like random almost end of the school year birthday you know I guess in college we did kind of have exams close to my birthday so I remember that there was definitely some nights like studying for exams and it was hard to get friends to come out for a couple of them um but that's it so yeah I've never had to share it before this one no I this isn't like a exciting birthday you know in the 30s whatever I I still like birthdays I like celebrating birthdays but I'm more than happy to share it with my dad like this has been a long time in the works for him obviously retirement's huge and as long as i get to see my family and friends and hang out um i'm happy doesn't really matter what we're celebrating but if we're celebrating both of us it just makes it a little bit better oh my god my mom's listening to this wishing she had you as a daughter because i'm like the complete <laughs> opposite but liz you share yours like right next to valentine's day so yeah but valentine's that's not day really is a, kind holiday. Of a stupid holiday <laughs> Hey, like, I, I take offense yeah. to that because I've spent Valentine's Day with you, Liz. I know. So I take I know. offense to that. I was your date one year. Yes, in Fargo. Fargo, North Dakota. We had fun. Mm. Um, yeah, no, I don't really feel like Valentine's Day really counts as a holiday. Like, I guess when I was younger, guys used to make a bigger deal out of it. And, like, it would get combo or whatever. And now it's just, like, more my birthday and less about Valentine's Day. So, Yeah. I don't know. That doesn't really bother me. You know, I think it's great. I think if you can get family together for a holiday and celebrate a birthday at the same time, it's, I think it's really fun. We know you've been wanting more, and this time we're going all out. Dynamics Con Live 2023. An in-person three-day multi-track event at the beautiful Scottsdale Plaza Resort in sunny Scottsdale, Arizona, May 22nd to the 25th. Along with the relaxing environment, there'll be plenty of food and beverages to keep you fueled up for three jam-packed days of learning. Come mingle with 700 like-minded Dynamics 365, Dynamics GP, and Power Platform community members. We'll have over 115 sessions with a diverse group of expert and new speakers, lively panel discussions, and social events to build those Doug community connections that'll be your resource year-round. Register before tickets and hotel rooms sell out. Visit live.dynamicscon.com today. Training. 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 Yep. Because I think last episode we talked a lot about how UET is not training. <laughs> so right. we thought this was a natural segue to talk about, you know, what to do, how to do good training and what it, what that looks like. Here, Liz, I'll like, start you off with a good loaded question. 
just to recap from last time too, why isn't UAT training? Well, <laughs> there's not everyone in UAT. Um, and the purposes of them are completely different. So like UAT is testing the system and training is teaching your end users how to use the system, hopefully in a way that's tailored and specific to their role. Um, so like fundamentally, they're just two completely separate things with different objectives and different groups of people, potentially. That's important to note. Yeah, like a small subset, whereas you might want to hit the whole entire group with some more organized training and a system that's built out and we know doesn't have errors and that they're not just trying to find issues through testing. Yeah, yeah. Because like a lot of times too, like in testing, you know, you want them to understand that this isn't the final product, right? And like if you were just trying to combine those two things together, I could see how end users could easily get discouraged, you know, thinking that the system has problems. And then like that first impression is kind of lost and you might lose some adoption that way if you try to combine them together, definitely. But I don't know, to me, the biggest thing is just that they're not the same group of people. Um, Cause I see a lot of times trainings that include, you know, people in different roles, they're gonna use systems in a different way, managers versus individual contributors or just, completely different groups of people. And it's really hard to do effective training if you're speaking to multiple audiences at the same time, because some of it's just not going to apply. And so the audience thing, I think, is just really critical to have training go well. Yeah. And I think that's another good, important note about training in general is when you're trying to make a good training plan, you want to sit down with the stakeholders that are involved with the project and start to identify the groups of people who need to be trained because you also need to start mapping out and figure out how many different training sessions do we need so you can cater it appropriately to all the different individuals who are going to be using the tool. You know, like you're probably not going to lump like sales and accounting and finance all into one training session, right? Unless not. there's overlap. <laughs> yeah. But it's right. You want to identify like, okay, so these are my four or five different groups. These are the ones that I want to train for this session. And you really want to identify where there might be crossover and who might need to be in those different training sessions. And I think that's usually a really good starting point. Also, I'll pause real quick because you guys have like the same color nail polish. And when Liz lifted her hand, I saw that. I noticed that. <laughs> I did it. I have like chrome over the top of mine though. Oh, it makes it like holographic ish. I don't know. It's weird. For our listeners, it's like a very pretty hot pink slash salmon. <laughs> I, didn't color. Do, I didn't do yellow. I was supposed to do yellow for April, and Liz was like, I beg you, please do not do yellow. I just so don't I think it works pink. with your complexion, but yeah, pink's better. I <laughs> That's funny. Um, so my question was going to be, who should deliver that training to the actual end users? Should it be a consultant? Should it be training department? Should it be people that were part of the whole project? What are your guys' thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a very good question as well. I think after you can identify your audience, that's the next thing to dive into is, all right, who's going to deliver this? Because they obviously need to know the processes. They need to know what they're going to be training on. And here's the big part that I think people forget is they have to be good at delivering training. 
So I think that a lot of the times people just get roped in because they've been involved with testing, but training isn't just sitting on a call, especially in this virtual world, like walking through step-by-step. It should include some type of knowledge check and proving that they understand the training that they've received um, and that they can actually use it once you go live. And so, you know, skill set is an important part of this too. And if you've had like a subject matter expert involved with the testing and they're not good at delivering training or they're not comfortable delivering training, you can't just force them and say, well, you know it the best, so you have to train on it. You have to kind of spend the time finding someone who's going to be a good fit. And maybe that is your subject matter expert. If there's someone who's been involved with testing is fantastic with the tool and they're good at delivering training and they kind of have that maybe a little bit of a leadership role over the team where the team will listen to them, then I think that's a great person to have do it. Um, You know, maybe you don't want the manager, if they've been involved, maybe you don't want them executing on the training because they might not have the same message to deliver to the team. I think having a dedicated learning and development resource or a trainer is always the best way to go if you can. Um, and then I would say kind of in partnership. So circling back to your comment about the consulting world, I think doing it in partnership with a consultant would be good. Um, and if you have a consultant who's willing to do the training, certainly take advantage of it because something as a consultant we do all the time is presenting, you know, doing sprint reviews, showing people how to use a tool. Um, but the part that you may miss from a consultant is the actual business application. And you want someone who can speak to the processes that they do that fully understands that person's job. So you're not just training them on, here's what you do, one, two, three, four, five. You want to be able to explain, here's what you do in step one, because, and here's what you do in step two, because, and you want it to like really apply to how the group does their job. So it sticks a little bit more. I agree. Like, I think obviously you want a good trainer, you know, someone that has that experience, that expertise, that skill set, and that interest in doing it. But I think it's almost always a combination of people because, you know, I I like it when there's that executive sponsor, that leader, that manager in there to kind of share that vision and, you know, support. This is why we're doing this. This is important. And then typically the, the like technical SME is different than the business process. Um, person. And so typically those two people come together to co-facilitate the training. Um, I think it's rare to find one person that kind of checks all those boxes. Um, I think that's pretty unusual and usually it's a team approach, but definitely finding a skilled trainer helps. It's not just a PowerPoint. It's not just a presentation. Um, There's a lot more to it than just, you know, it's a quick demo and we showed you once and now we're, we're done. That's not really how you do effective training. I I guess this comes from somebody who's not like, I feel like you guys are both trainers, right? That is your background. That's what you guys are good at. And coming from somebody who's not a certified trainer, whatever that in quotes, right? I mean, whether that's like just what you're good at or do, or if you're actually certified, like through training programs, Microsoft offers them things like that. Um, I find training difficult because everybody has different expectations of what training means. Um, Like you just called out a couple of really good things there. Like it's not just a PowerPoint, but it's also not just a demo. Like sometimes you do have to incorporate like, okay, I'm going to put together this 30 page PowerPoint, you know, 30 point slides or whatever, and like walk you through the process. And like Ali, you said, oh, I'm going to combine okay, this is where you are in the sales process and this is how it links up with dynamics and the system or whatever. And then, okay, we're actually going to jump into the system and walk through it. 
I think that that's a really, um, it's a skill, right? To be able to draw those lines together. Um, one that I know I'm not great at. And so I think that people need to recognize what you guys just said is that like, even though I know the technology really well, I understand business process really well. I'm one of those unique people that can draw from both, but that doesn't mean I'm always the best one to deliver the message because, you know, I can lean one way or the other. So I think having people understand that like, it's not, it's not easy training. I rarely see, yeah. So like we talked about defining audience and then we talked about like, you know, what's next, getting the right person to do the training. But I, I see so often that a lot of times when people do trainings, there's no learning objectives and I don't always do them either. Right. Because sometimes it's like, we don't have the budget or the time. And so you just kind of like rush through it, even though, you know, it's not, you're not following the process you really should be but you really should be documenting your learning objectives and having a very clear decision on these are the three to seven things that they need to be able to do out after the training and then measure them on that. Because just, especially in a virtual setting, like, you know, it's pretty easy to join a, a, a Teams call, a Zoom call, whatever, sit through a meeting and then walk away and still not be able to do any of it or understand or retain any of it. And so I think that like, clear learning objectives that's applicable to the audience and then following up and measuring on that after is going to lead you to having successful training and making sure that what you're trying to teach them lands and sticks and they, they get it and understand it afterwards. Absolutely. And I think everything you just said, and then tying back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of identifying your audience, because I think the other trap that people fall into, especially as we're virtual now, is let's cram as many people as we can into these trainings to make the best of everybody's time. And you can't do effective training virtually to a group of like 50 to 75 people. Like that's, that's definitely not possible. You want to keep your groups as small as you can. So that way you can get interaction while you're working with them. You know, there's this whole idea out there of adult learning theory and you want to do recall with them as you're teaching and you want people, you want to like force people to be engaged, right? As you're delivering, when you pause for a question, you want to pause for an uncomfortable period of time, like a full 30 seconds, a full minute, you know, it feels uncomfortable, but you want to make it uncomfortable. So people feel like they can come off of mute and contribute. Um, you want to do recall throughout the training, whether it's a pop quiz or having someone share their screen and demonstrate that they know what they're doing. Um, you, you want to be able to work all that in. So having the right audience size is also really important. And it drives me nuts when I see people try to jam like an entire company on one call just to make good yeah. use of time. I mean, I don't think you should have more than 20 ever, but you know, that would be my max too. I think, you know, that's kind of pushing it. And I think you need to set the expectation that they're going to need to participate and be engaged too, because I know it is hard to get people to come off mute or be on camera and it is very awkward to pause for 30 to 60 seconds. Just, hey, like anyone have any questions or anyone want to share their screen? Like it's uncomfortable, especially in a virtual setting. Like I don't feel like it's as bad when you're in person because you can kind of see them and like you have the body language factor and that helps. That's my yeah. favorite part of training is that uncomfortable silence after a question. <laughs> because like I always say like wait till it's uncomfortable. And then like, wait, like 15 more seconds after it becomes uncomfortable, like, because 
either people are going to realize, oh, she really does mean it, like ask questions or like somebody feels like they have to fill the silence, even if it's a, hey, I understand this. Well, why? Like, what about it do you understand? You know, like, because sometimes you get people just to come off mute to even just confirm, hey, you know what? I'm right there with you. Cool. What about it was so helpful? You know what I mean? You can start that engagement. And it's not only about coming off of mute now either, right? Like you, you also now have this added factor of being inclusive during your virtual trainings. And some people may not be able to come off of mute. They may not really feel comfortable off of mute. So it's also opening it up, you know, thinking of teams, opening it up and telling people put this in chat or doing polls or like mix up your engagement types just so you're giving people an equal opportunity to participate as well. Um, because some people might not be comfortable speaking on a call, especially if you do have a larger group towards the 20 size. So start thinking about how you can get engagement in other ways to raise your hand, throw me an emoji, put something in the chat, use polls. You know, there's all these different ways that you can get that engagement in Teams and Zoom and whatever platform you're using. I just started I think- using polls in Teams for the first time this year and they're great. Yeah, so I totally agree with that. And the other tool I like to use for games is Kahoot. That's really fun too. I've Sorry, done Kahoot to too. Off, actually. <laughs> no, you're good. I was going to say, because depending on how deep of training or like if you're a training company, I don't think Zoom and Teams maybe has all the functionality you need. Because I remember when I, when we were building training, I was in a sales ops department. So training was part of, you know, what one person did. And so I got to use all of the fun tools that she had. And there's some out there that can like um, gauge uh, engagement based on whether or not somebody has another screen pulled over your screen. Like it can tell things like that. They're like, oh, I'm just going to listen and have this in the background, but I'm going to continue to multitask. Um, You can see that. So I, I think that to your point, like I think Microsoft Teams and Zoom have a ton of functionality, but depending on if you're like a training department, like there's a lot of tools out there that can tell you a lot about how people are engaging with the the training. When I was a full-time trainer, we had, and this was kind of pre-Zoom and pre-Teams, I'm kidding myself, but like (laughs) we were using Skype. So like it just wasn't an option to, there wasn't that like kind of free virtual meeting option, I guess that was part like status quo. And so we were using GoToTraining, which is a subset, Mm -hmm. like it's a tool like GoToWebinar, but it has all this built in stuff for virtual engagement. And exactly what you're talking about, Ashley, where it tells you, who has their, like, who's paying attention and who's not. And it's not perfect because I think if you have multiple screens or whatever, it's not entirely accurate, but it does give you kind of a good sense of, like, how many people are paying attention. Yeah, and I was using Adobe Connect, I think. So I guess my message here is just if you are, like, a hardcore training department, right, and this is all you do, and, and Teams and Zoom isn't doing enough, there are other options out there. But I do think that, Teams is becoming really powerful in terms of training um, with all of the add-ons that you can put in there, right? Polls is just one of them, but there's a bunch of things that you can add into a meeting to kind of like breakout rooms was another one. Liz, you introduced me to, I had no idea teams could do breakout rooms. And so I'm putting together some training for TalkFluent and I'm already finding ways to put the different pieces of things, you know, that teams gives you to make it like more exciting and force people out of their comfort to like, to, to, to engage more. So. 
I think we'll definitely have to link out some of these ideas in our show notes when we post this because we just offered up a whole lot of really good information <laughs> on how you can engage your learners more. So we'll link that out to everybody as well. And as we're talking about, you know, this different engagement and virtual meetings and things, a lot of times people are still looking for like written documentation. And I understand that has its place, but with tools like Dynamics, especially the customer engagement apps like sales, customer service, where they're constantly getting updated and we tend to deliver on them in iterations, pretty much as soon as you create this written documentation, it's out of date, right? So it, it's kind of painful when I watch people go through tons of written documentation and then you see it get out of date really quick. So you know, keeping that in mind, because a lot of people do like to see the written documentation, but I will do a plug here for ClickLearn because what they have a cool tool that allows it to be pretty easy to create documentation as well. And I've used an SAP tool in the past as well for the same thing, but there also are tools out there to make documentation quicker and more efficient, just with the understanding that it often needs to be updated frequently. Well, since Allie threw out the recommendation for ClickLearn, we've also had Visual SB. So we actually had ClickLearn on the podcast um, in January, I think. That was before this transition. Merlin was still on. Um, so go back and listen to that one. But we also had Visual SB, um, Asif. So there's a lot of great tools out there that can do that, that, that help provide training that will take your, hey, I'm going to create this process, click, 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 and then it'll write out the documentation for you so that it's easier to update. So... So a lot of good tools out there. Yeah, totally. I love that. What have you guys found in the past for like measuring the success of learning? That's something that, you know, Liz talked to a little bit here and you often get asked for by stakeholders, right? Is, well, how do I know if the learning worked or the training worked? Well, I think there's kind of two pieces, right? Like one is just getting feedback, which I think is the most common thing that happens. But like just getting survey feedback is not actually measuring success like that's just getting information to improve future training so like you can obviously have them take some sort of like quiz um to test knowledge or you could have someone like observe them like shadow them so i think it really depends on what you're training on and what your learning objectives are like there's kind of different tactics to measure it depending on what you're trying to teach them um, but I think kind of observation um, and tests are the most common things that I've seen that are think, applicable to our industry. <laughs> yeah, I think the, going along with observation is just how is their actual usage of the system? So if you're training a sales department and they're supposed to be moving opportunities through a process into a funnel and they're not, all of their opportunities are still sitting at the top, then I think that's a good indication that they didn't take it or you just need to follow up with them or so I think sometimes their behavior in the system afterwards their comprehension of what you were trying to do are they just being lazy or did they not understand that they have to take a couple of extra steps to get to where you were um so I think sometimes that is helpful as well I agree but I don't think that's like always based on no the but because it's a user adoption thing and that has a lot more components to just agreed yeah agreed yeah. yeah but it's a good place to start to retrain too i would say right and if you have poor user adoption that could be a sign that training wasn't effective but it might training might not be the only thing and i love that you say that too because that's exactly where my mind went when ashley was saying this because i have been as a trainer in situations before where people will come and say oh this person needs to be trained 
And then I'll go sit with them and they know exactly how to do what they're supposed to be doing, but no one is holding them accountable for actually doing what they're supposed to be doing. So then, you know, it's kind of a waste of your time as a trainer to sit down with them because they know what they're doing. And the trainer often isn't the same person who's supposed to be holding them accountable. So then it turns into like an accountability conversation. Exactly. Yes. yes. And like, who is checking this? Who is responsible? You know, going back to the manager saying, you need to follow up with your person. They know exactly how to do this, but they don't want to. <laughs> you need to help me craft this <laughs> message to them to help get them on board. <laughs> how do you guys feel about train the trainer programs? I really like train the trainers. I think train the trainers, um, when they're done well, are very, very effective. And why I like them too is because if you open up a train the trainer program, a lot of the times you get people raising their hand to participate who may not have been selected to be a trainer all the time. So number one, I like that it gives the opportunity for other people in these positions to train and kind of growth opportunities for them to excel in their careers. Um, number two, I like that you can give those same people a new skill set and kind of give them kind of like mini leadership roles on their team. So a lot of the times there'll be, you know, someone on an existing sales team, for example, who wants to help train and get people to use a tool more frequently or better. Um, so you're giving them a growth opportunity. And then it also alleviates some of the need for like a full on learning and development team for every software, because especially at big organizations, you have a lot of different tools out there that people constantly need to be trained on. Learning and development teams often don't have the budget or the capabilities to develop these huge scale training programs. So you're tapping into resources who are already using these tools, who are already at your company, and just kind of adding on this added responsibility of them to be in charge of teaching people on this tool or the process or whatever it may be. So I'm I'm full supporter. I think they're great. I think you do need someone with who can provide oversight to the program, who can help out, make sure it's done well, but train the trainer well executed is very valuable in my opinion. I've seen so many of those not be done well though. So Allie, <laughs> what are the other key components to success for a, an effective you know, train the trainer program? Yeah, I think oversight is one of the big ones. You need to have a stakeholder. You need to have multiple stakeholders. You need to have people who are buying into this train the trainer and who are going to support it. Um, I think you also need to consider some type of benefit for the people that you're putting in those trainer roles because you are adding responsibility to their plate. So if that doesn't come with a title change, a compensation change, a you know some type of benefit to say, thank you, I appreciate you taking on this added responsibility, then a lot of times the trainers aren't really buying into it either. And then I think tying back to our conversation about measuring success is important with it as well, is you still want to measure the success of the train the trainer program. You want to hold your trainers accountable for what they're doing. And you want someone to be able to check in with them and make sure that what they're doing is successful. And if one of your trainers is not holding up their end of the bargain or it's not going well, don't keep them in that role. You know, so there, like I said, there has to be some governance over it or someone in charge and kind of measuring the success, making sure it's successful. And then also not keeping people in those trainer roles if it's not a good fit for them. Because, you know, to Ashley's point, it certainly isn't for everyone. And you want people in those roles that are going to do a good job. 
I would say, like, what doesn't work with Train the Trainer from what I've seen is when if you're the company and you're, you don't want to pay the consultant to do the training, so you just opt to train the trainer, but then you don't do anything that Allie just talked about. So you don't have oversight, you don't have a plan, you don't have incentive, you don't really have trainers that are invested, and you're just trying to add more work to people's plates, and that's it. And that doesn't really go well because they – it just – it's not a priority then and like that effort isn't there typically from what I see happen and so it's not just a, a a way to cut costs because then the training just won't be effective so like you still need to put effort into planning your train the trainer program it's not just a afterthought I guess because I see that happen so much where that's what is in scope and then it just kind of fizzles out at the very end of the project because training is just really not done well. Well, and then I, I forgot to mention this, but as you were talking, it kind of came back to me. You have to give your train the trainers training too. Right. <laughs> and, and it's not only on the platform or the tool that they are going to be training other people on, but train them how to be trainers. I right? never see that done though. I see like, okay, here's the system run through what we built, but do you ever see training on how to be a trainer? Um, I'm okay. Maybe I'm a little biased because I do that, but <laughs> I've also seen it done internally at Stone Ridge. Our L and D team was very good at that. We just had our Academy and they did have train the trainer sessions, which I really, really appreciated. And this is from our L and D team who doesn't know the platform. Right. So they're bringing all of us together from our FinOps team, from BC and from CE and just teaching everyone how to be a good trainer. And so I've seen it done internally, um, but you're right that it's not done a lot. And I think that needs to be done more because it's everything we talked about right at the beginning of this episode is we were talking about how to deliver um, successful training. And it's not just one, two, three, four, five. This is what you do. Have a good day. It's everything in between and the interaction and the gauging and the measuring and everything. And I think that's an important part of train the trainer in order to make it successful is teach them how to be trainers. And I've seen it done internally at consulting companies too. Like we, we used to way back in the day at Power Objects, it was part of like every new consultant went through how to be a trainer. It's part of like their internal onboarding, but I don't see it done very often, like consulting yeah. to end user but I was gonna say I had an end user I had a we didn't call it it was train the trainer we called it like an ambassador program or something where we had people to step up and I did that as best as I could not being a certified trainer myself but offered them tips and tricks and way to use the tool um on how to train but I mean again that is only as good as the person doing it right I would never claim that I'm a great trainer so I'm only sharing what I know so I think that having somebody, the right person lead that also is key. And again, you know, it might come down to budget to Ashley's earlier point as well is, you know, unfortunately I see it too, where training is the thing that gets cut. It's, oh, we can handle this, but it's, that's so risky. And it, you know, again, I might be biased because I have a training background, but it pains me a little bit to see that because it, that's how your users know how to use the tool. And of course, as consultants, we want to deliver a tool that's intuitive. That's our goal. We don't want it to be cumbersome. We don't want it to be hard. But at the end of the day, it's still something new that they have to learn. And there has to be some element of training involved with it. And so I think that may be too, if you have very slim budget, then it's like, okay, what's more important, teaching them how to be trainers or teaching them on how to use the tool so they can tell other people how to use the tool. And it's a hard decision to make. And 
I think that's unfortunately probably why we end up not seeing the trainer part all that often. But at the end of the day, the system is only as good as the people using it. So like if you, you know, cut out the training part and the people aren't using it the way they should be or getting the most out of it, then it's like you did that whole project for nothing. So I just, it, it hurts me to see when training is done poorly or completely cut out because it's just, feels like such a waste. And it's so hard to recover from that once people get that kind of bad mindset about the system. Yep, I agree with you. So everyone, don't hurt me and Liz. <laughs> or <laughs> Ashley. <laughs> you can hurt me, that's fine. <laughs> I also wanted to add that, like, training is not just a one-time thing. Um, so you need to, like, find a way to do reinforcement training, do Q&A sessions. Like, it's not going to all stick the first time they hear it. It doesn't for anyone. Um, and so you have to repeat it and you, they will come up with new things and new questions as they use the system. And so it's not a one and done deal. Like they did this one time training and now they never need training again. And so you definitely need a team of people that are planning and facilitating reinforcement training on a regular basis. That might be weekly or monthly, maybe quarterly, but you definitely need to keep doing it. And I don't see that happen enough either. I'll say so as in I'm coming from the admin side. So I feel like I'm coming from a completely different angle than than both of you. I, I know, Allie, you, I mean, we've all worked on the, the end user side. So I shouldn't say that. But one of the things I favorite things I ever did as an admin was I held office hours where like it was, you know, 20 minutes a week, right? I just sent it out to everybody and said, hey, join if you have questions or if not. But I always had like a topic. Like if nobody comes in, like I'd always start who has questions, who's running into an issue, but you don't want to just sit there for 20 minutes and stare at everybody. Right. So I would always have like a topic of, Hey, did you know that the system could do this? Or we're going to talk about this again today. Um, and I would include that like in the notes, like, Hey, you know, come with questions. We'll also talk about whatever the topic is for that week. Um, and that was definitely a lesson learned because I opened up the first couple and was like, who has questions? And then just like waited patiently Crickets. waiting for people to <laughs> ask questions. Um, but the more you put out there, like I could definitely see like they would open up and say, oh, I have a question here. Um, so that was and that was when it was just me as a CRM admin for 500 users. Um, that was one of my favorite things because it was the way to reach the most amount of people as possible, you know, just once a week, once, like you said, I, you know, if you don't have the capacity, um, but have a plan like that, I would note through user adoption. That was a good note that you guys called me out, but through user adoption, I would note the things that were maybe not being taken advantage of or being used well. And I would use those as retraining ideas. Um, you know, when it sounds like you're doing little like bite-sized nuggets of information too, like you're not covering yeah. the whole system or the whole process. Like you, it sounds like you were showing them one thing that was applicable mm -hmm. and that's so much easier to remember too. And like retain if you're getting one thing for like 20 minutes a week instead of all of it all at once. Yeah. So like, I love that idea. I think it's that also makes every admin should do it. <laughs> I'll say that's also makes for great, like recorded content because you can easily just record that, put it on a SharePoint site somewhere or in Teams. I would encourage you to create a team in Teams for your for your folks and have, you know, separate teams like sales, like you said, sales, accounting, finance, service, have their own team in there and put that information. But it also makes for just great videos, just on demand. And people are more likely to watch videos than read Word documents and documentation. Dep I feel like depends on the generation. Okay. 
I think training is all generational, uh, which we did not get into. And I know we're, we are actually coming up on time. So would love any like last thoughts that you guys have. But I do think going back to like having that physical piece of paper in front of you is definitely a generational thing because um, I don't want to say this like that's unpolitically correct. But older generations, I have found they wanted that physical document in their hand where they could page through and, t- you know, put handwritten notes on it. Um but even like, I would say the, what is it? The older generations, the younger generations don't even want to jump on a call. They just want to have that on-demand stuff and be able to do it at their own pace. So I think you definitely need to read your audience that way as well. Or maybe you try to provide all forms, all methods of communication. So you're hitting, cause you, you probably have every, mm-hmm. every different type on your team. So you kind of absolutely do it all. Yeah. If you can. And that circles back to those tools that are available that can help pop out all sorts of things all at the same time, like quick click throughs, quick printed documents, videos, you know, and it's for, for efficiency sake. And if you're ever unsure about what would resonate most with your audience, ask. It's, it's a super easy question to ask your stakeholders, ask the people who you're training, how do you absorb learning the most and have them tell you. Because you don't want to spend a whole bunch of time on type documentation for them to say, well, we don't have anywhere to save this and we don't use it for anything else. So we prefer videos. So just have that conversation and ask before you waste your time doing things that won't be used. The last thing I'll add is in the comments, I would love to hear what other people are doing for training, like tips, tricks, things that you've learned, um, things that you've seen work really well as a, either as a consultant or as an admin internally, um, what has worked really well, because I think that's the best way for us all to learn is by what other people have done and their feedback. Absolutely. I love that. Thanks for tuning in to Dynamics Hot Dish, your go-to podcast for all things Dynamics 365 and the Power Platform. If you found this episode helpful, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget to follow us on social media for even more insights and updates on the latest trends and best practices in business applications and low-code development. We'll be back soon with another delicious serving of dynamics and power platform goodness. Until then, keep innovating and building great solutions.